The more I learned, the more concerned I grew because back then the science was very clear that we had to stop dumping carbon pollution in our precious atmosphere as if it's some kind of free and open sewer. I even started investing in the area over three funds, hired Al Gore to be a partner of ours in this mission. We put about a billion dollars in 70 different ventures, learned a lot of lessons. Many of these failed. Some were crushed by the Chinese strategies and governments. Seven of our eight solar ventures failed, but we stuck by these entrepreneurs over time and That's they how began success to happened. deliver solutions. From Entrepreneur Magazine, my name is Robert Tuckman. I self-funded, built up, and eventually sold two businesses to major players in the sports and entertainment industry. And I am fascinated by other entrepreneurial minds and what drives high achieving people. So on this podcast, we're going to learn what they've learned and what it takes to really succeed. Global climate crisis is one that we need to address. To hurdle this massive obstacle, it is important that we come together in unity to achieve net zero carbon emissions. There are many amazing movements and things we are currently doing to tackle this global problem. And at the forefront is John Doerr, one of the wealthiest men in the entire world. And if not for his own daughter, he may never have jumped on this mission. John is also an engineer, venture capitalist, the chair of Kleiner Perkins, and the author of the number one bestseller, Measure What Matters, and also Speed and Scale, an action plan to solve the global climate crisis. John has served entrepreneurs with ingenuity and optimism, helping them build bold teams and disruptive companies. He was an original investor and board member at Google and Amazon, and has helped to create more than a million jobs. A pioneer of Silicon Valley's clean tech movement, he has invested in zero emissions technologies since 2006. Outside Kleiner Perkins, John works with social entrepreneurs who are tackling systemic issues across climate, public health, and education. So I started by asking John about the people in his life who shaped him as a business leader and person. Far and away, my hero has been and is my, my dad, Ludor, who was an engineer, a sales executive who loved people, technology when... Uh, in his era was mechanical engineering, and he uh, founded several companies with friends along the way. But most of all, he was a great dad. As he said, John, your mom and I are going to give you one thing no one can ever take away from you, and that's a good education. And by the way, that's all we're going to give you. After that, you're on your own. <laughs> I love that. But just it sounds like he was an incredible person and, and someone who still it sounds like each day is is shaping your life. And you did end up going to college and, and you ended up going in and working at Intel back in the 70s, I believe. And what was that like at the time? Oh, it was exciting. What an amazing place. It was right around the time that they invented the 8-bit microprocessor. They'd done a 4-bit one before that, but that was mostly a controller. This, for the first time, you could see was going to be a computer. And so I threw myself into Intel, which was growing like crazy. And, um, you know, Bill Gates was a pimply-faced teenager at that time, <laughs> selling Intel a basic interpreter. And also, I believe, a Fortran compiler for our 8-bit microprocessor. And uh, I, I was one of the electrical engineers who loved programming. And 
So helped all kinds of Intel customers apply these microprocessors to everything from heart defibrillators to traffic light controllers. And the IMSI 8-bit microcomputer is really what it was that ran Bill Gates' basic and DOS. It sounds like, and I can still hear the excitement and the passion that you had or have for, for what you're doing. Was that always something inside of you, especially on the technology side, or, or did that really develop once you got to Intel? You know, it was before Intel. I'm not sure what the psychological origins of it are. Maybe I was a, a Roman Catholic raised kid who needed to prove himself lovable over and over again to his parents and everyone around him. But I was the eldest of a family of five kids great brothers and sisters. And we all just had a good Midwestern work ethic. Yeah. I think, as I notice, a lot of people who come from the Midwest definitely find that work ethic and, and have it. And you sound like you did a lot of work and hard work at Intel, but you decided at one point to go into venture capital and I guess, join Kleiner Perkins at the time. And how did that go? What, why did you make that decision? I was uh, five or so years into my career at Intel and had no thought of leaving there. I mean, gosh, it was center of the innovation universe. And Moore's Law was just getting started. You know, we had decades to go of every two years, everything cost half of what it did before. And by the way, if you have Moore's Law working for you, you sure as hell ought to be able to build a great business. There's a lot of us in Silicon Valley who I think are unjustifiably proud of our entrepreneurial accomplishments, but they've really all been built off the, the, the backs of the raw ingredient costs half as much every two years, 40% compounding for 50 years in a row. Don't take that for granted. But the key, I think, was to recognize that computing was going to be democratized. It was going to be in everything. And I think Gordon Moore had a forecast that there'd be a dozen microprocessors in every home, like in the refrigerator and the microwave oven, not, not to mention the computer. And of course, he was off by more than an order of magnitude. There's hundreds of these everywhere in our lives. And Intel, and Andy Grove at Intel, was the operator. He was the executor. He got that done. And so I got a phone call from a friend of mine because I really didn't want to join a venture capital firm. I didn't have a very clear idea what venture capital did. And in particular, Kleiner, Perkins, Caulfield, and Byers, it sounded like some kind of law firm. <laughs> but, but they wanted to hire a, a junior gopher who would read and review business plans. And a lot of them had microprocessors in them. That, that was a plus for me. And, and who would check those out. I made them promise me that they would back me in my own business because that's what I really wanted to do. Start a company with friends like my dad had. And they lived up to their promise. In fact, they could point to proof because Kleiner Partners had written the business plan for Genentech and they backed Bob Swanson when he not only started a company, he started a whole new industry. So the, the Kleiner VCs weren't really money types. They were engineers and entrepreneurs. Eugene Kleiner at Fairchild Semiconductor. Tom Perkins started the mini computer operations at, at Hewlett Packard. And so I just threw myself into that, that world and nearly left Kleiner a couple times on sabbatical to run the desktop division of Sun Microsystems. And then I took a sabbatical in, in Washington, D.C. with Tim Wirth. You know, I wanted to understand how government worked. And as I learned more about that, I, 
I decided that wasn't the right thing for me full time. But I've been with Kleiner 40 some odd years, 43 years. And we're celebrating this year, this this month, our 50th anniversary as a firm with, uh, I'd say, easily our third generation of great leaders. Wow. Congratulations. And it's incredible from going from Intel, especially at that time, to Kleiner, where not even sure what a VC did, right? Or, and then having a bunch of times you've thought about potentially doing other things, but yet here you are and uh, you had your hand in so many, I mean, the biggest of the biggest businesses that have ever come out of Silicon Valley. How, how does that make you feel personally to have played a part in some of those incredible companies? Well, you're emphasizing the important point. I I was a bit player. I played a part in it. It's a great privilege to think that I was able to help uh, Jeff Bezos or Larry and Sergey or or Mark Andreas and and Jim Clark with Netscape that kicked off this whole internet revolution. And I think the theme is I just try to be useful. Whatever we need to do, we need to hire somebody to run operations, or we need to raise funding, or we need to try to close a big strategic relationship with a customer. If I can help, that's my job. But make no mistake about it. It's the entrepreneurs themselves who make all the difference in the world. And that's why I've never quite gotten rid of this entrepreneurial bug, because I love so much seeing teams come together and achieve nearly impossible things. And as uh, Larry Page used to say, still says for that matter. I'd much rather have a team aim for Mars, fall short of that and know they'll get to the moon. So audacious stretch goals is something that Andy Grove, Jeff Bezos, Larry Page, these amazing entrepreneurs all believed in and live. Yeah. Well, it's uh, incredible that you've had the opportunity, as you said, to play a part. And I'm sure a much bigger part than you're alluding to. And as I'm sure they would say, and I want to move to something that you've really become involved with. And it seems like it's become incredibly important to you as as should and to many people who inhabit the planet Earth. And uh, you are out recently, your book, Speed and Scale, talking about climate change. What, I guess, sparked your initial interest in climate change? So this all started for me about 15 years ago. There was a real cultural turning point when Al Gore's movie, An Inconvenient Truth, He made a movie out of a slideshow, out of a PowerPoint, and it captured the attention and popularized, communicated, conveyed the climate crisis to more than 8 million viewers, won them an Academy Award and a Nobel Peace Prize. I mean, and I went to see the movie with some friends and family and then had them over to the home for dinner to talk about it afterwards. We went around the table. Some of my Republican friends said, looks like there's global warming, but I'm, I'm not sure it's human caused. Others had points of view. When the conversation came to my 15-year-old daughter, Mary Dorr, Robert, she looked right at me and she said, Dad, I'm scared and I'm angry. Your generation created this problem. You better fix it. And the room went silent, including me. I had no idea what to say or what to do. So I set out with my partners to, to learn as much as I could about the climate crisis. And we went through labs at MIT. We went to the Brazil. We saw the Amazon rainforest. We went to the Mojave Desert and learned. And the more I learned, the more concerned I grew because back then the science was was very clear that we had to stop dumping 
carbon pollution in our precious atmosphere as if it's some kind of free and open sewer. I even started investing in the area over three funds, hired Al Gore to be a partner of ours in this mission. We put about a billion dollars in 70 different ventures, learned a lot of lessons. Many of these failed. Some were crushed by the Chinese Mm. strategies and governments. Seven of our eight solar ventures failed. But uh, we stuck by these entrepreneurs over time, and uh, they began to deliver solutions that were innovations for plant-based meat, like Beyond Meat, or residential solar panels like Enphase, or smart thermostats like, like, like Nest. But as much as we did, there's a recurring theme, I think, to this climate crisis, and that is that everything we're doing, we have been doing, is not enough. We need greater urgency and greater ambition so that we can answer the challenge that now comes from the next generation of youth. Mary Dorr, yes, but Greta Thunberg, it's the impassioned and angry youth that give me hope that we can get this done in time. And, and, And one thing that hit me over the head recently about this crisis was there was no plan. There were lots of goals, lots of targets. But a, a list of goals is is not a plan. It's and we are fast running out of time here. So that's what led directly to this book, Speed and Scale. It's an action plan for solving the climate crisis. Very specific, time bound, measurable, and in doing it now. You know, you just mentioned running out of time. I don't think a lot of people realize that and understand where we are with climate change. What does science tell us and and, and why are we running out of time? Well, this is a, a wicked problem, and that's in the physics and chemistry of carbon pollution. When we put carbon in the atmosphere, it remains there for hundreds of years or more. It's not like a bathtub that you can fill up and then open the drain and, and, and remove it easily or readily. In fact, removing carbon is one of the most ambitious and expensive and risky parts of my plan. And the IPCC tells us we've got to remove about 10 gigatons of carbon to get to net zero. So let's let's do a quick recap of the numbers, the science here. The overall goal is to take the 59 gigatons of carbon net carbon that we put in the atmosphere, as I've said, like it's some kind of free and open sewer, to zero, to net zero. So if we look at the carbon that gets absorbed by our forests and our trees, that counts. That's a negative. We've got to get to net zero by 2050 to have a 50-50 chance of holding the rise in temperature from pre-industrial levels to one and a half degrees Celsius. That's not a given, by the way. It's just to have the odds in our favor. We've got to get 59 gigatons to net net zero. We have never in the history of you and me being on this planet reduced net carbon emissions. So we've got to do this rapidly, abruptly, decisively. In fact, the science tells us we've got to cut the emissions in half by 2030. That's in the next eight years. And just to bring those numbers home, that means they've got a decline this year by 8%. And then 8% again in 2023, in 24, in 25, because we've got a growing planet with more human activity. And so what do you think are the odds we're going to pull that off? More from our guests, but first, a word from our sponsors. Support for Entrepreneur is brought to you by Upwork, where you can build the team that will build your business. With Upwork, you can find top developers, designers, project managers, and more who can start today. 
so your business can succeed tomorrow. Find talent at home or from 180 countries around the world so you can hire the right talent for whatever your business needs. Upwork, the world's work marketplace. Learn more at www.upwork.com. And our next sponsor. So, this is the part where I'm getting paid to tell you about Real Vision. Since 2014, Real Vision's been on a mission to democratize access to the financial information that was largely kept behind closed doors. The stuff that actually affects your wallet, your investments, and your future. As a member, you'll get daily videos and analysis, plus access to more than 3,000 videos from the archives, including special limited series, focused educational journeys for beginners and experienced investors alike. And guess what? You can join Real Vision for just $1. That's right, $1. To get started, visit realvision.com slash success pod. Get a year of essential membership for only $199, a 17% discount, and less than $17 a month. Use promo code ESSENTIALPOD at checkout. Again, that's realvision.com slash successpod, and successpod is just one word. And we're back. You outline a plan in your book. And I want you to talk to us about how to get to, you know, net zero, as you said, by 2050. Tell us a little bit about that plan. So the plan has six goals and it's inspired, incidentally, by a story I tell in the book about FDR's plan to win World War II back in 1942. He wrote down a simple, clear plan, which the country, the world desperately needed. And guess what? It worked. (laughs) So our plan is, I'll share it with you here. John is pulling up a screen he's actually got outlined for his plan, and he will take us through it. Yeah, I'll talk you right through that. And by the way, for your listeners, you can get this plan for free right now. Just go to the website, speedandscale.com, and you can print it out. You can download it. There's six big goals. Those are first, to electrify transportation. Second, decarbonize the grid. Third, to fix our food systems. Fourth, to protect nature, to stop deforesting the Amazon, for example. Fifth, to clean up industry. That's principally how we make steel and cement. And then sixth, finally, to find some way economically to remove the stubborn carbon that's going to be left over after we've cut all the emissions we possibly can. There's about 10 gigatons to be removed there. Those are the six great objectives. Any one of these is a world all into its own. And the book is organized by chapter by chapter, like around these six objectives. What makes this such a tall order is we've got to do it now. We've got to act very rapidly. So we identify 10 accelerators, Robert. Those are winning the politics and policy, turning movements into action, innovating. We do not have all the technology we need today to get us to net zero. So entrepreneurs around the world increasingly are are innovating like crazy. And then we've got to invest. It's estimated it's going to take $4 trillion a year for 30 years to make this transition from the dirty energy economy to the new clean energy economy. Now, if your viewers have gone to the website to look at this plan, 
you'll see that not only are there these 10 big objectives, but for each of them, hmm. there's three to five very specific time-bound measurable key results. And I'm sharing the screen right now that shows the key results for electrifying transportation. Of the 59 gigatons that we're tossing into the atmosphere every year, our plan calls to reduce eight gigatons in transportation to two gigatons for a net savings of six gigatons. And to cite an example of just one of these to give the readers who don't have the plan an idea what's going on, we call for key result 1.2, that one of every two new personal vehicles purchased worldwide, this is a global plan, by the way, it applies to India and China and Africa and the US. Half of those, 50% of those need to be EVs by 2030 and 95% of them by 2040. Here's another example. What really counts isn't the new vehicles, it's the miles driven. Hmm. And so we call for in 1.4, 50% of the miles driven across all vehicles to be electric by 2040. That'll take five gigatons of our 59 gigatons out of the mix, out of, out of the equation. The good news here, Robert, the good news is that in the fourth quarter, just end, just in December of 2021, 10% of the new passenger vehicles were electric, up from just 4% in the third quarter. So this change is underway. We've got a long way to go. We've got to get electric vehicles, not so much so they're affordable in the US, which should be at no price parity, 35 grand per vehicle by 2024. We've got to get them in India and China down to $11,000 a vehicle. We've got to do that by 2030 to achieve this plan. Overwhelmingly, one of the most important things we can do is lower the cost of these new energy technologies. Hard engineering, scale, manufacturing, which is why the book's all about speed and scale. I'm going to unshare the screen because I realize our viewers can't all see that now, but yeah, but that yeah, was very down, download the plan. Definitely and extremely impressive. And um, like you said, and you've seen it with businesses, uh, you need, especially climate change, talked about so many times all over, not a plan. This is great. There is a plan. But the amazing thing is it's global and you're dealing with so many different countries, like you said, who have much different politics than ours. And that really has to be, I would imagine, a big challenge for you and for us to achieve this goal. I think uh, one of the places the plan has been most plotted has been in the accelerants, and in particular, the politics and policy and turning movements into action. A couple of the key results there. Key result 7.1 is that every country, a national commitment to reach net zero emissions by 2050 and to get halfway there by 2030. It's going to take longer in the developed countries than, the, than hmm. in the develop, developing world than the developed countries. But a measure of this, and I talked about the power of Mary Doors and Impassioned Youth is the story of Greta Thunberg. In 2019, she was a 15-year-old Swedish teenager who was skipping school on Fridays, lone teenager sitting outside the Swedish parliament. By 2019, she had turned the climate crisis into the largest organized demonstration, a million youth around the world in 100 cities striking for climate transformation. And our key result is not just to hold the strikes, but to turn the 
issue into a top two voting issue in the top 20 emitting countries and to do that by 2025. Greta did that in 2019 with Hmm. her strikes for the European nations. And so Europe, the argument is, how much are we going to do? How fast will we go to address climate? It's not that there's climate deniers and believers. They're all believers in Europe. But it is not a top two voting issue in the US. It is not a top two issue in China or in India. So that's work that we call out that's measurable, that the plan must achieve. I talk about other movements. The movements aren't just the protesters. I think the Walmart story is a powerful one. If you look look at Doug McMillan, who we profile, Walmart has declared that by 2040, they want their supply chains to be carbon neutral by 2040. Walmart's a fortune one company. They buy and resell more stuff than anybody in the world. And they've said, we're not only going to work on our supply chains, we're going to become the first regenerative company. So we're going to set aside and protect millions of acres of land and ocean so that nature has a chance to uh, restore the the carbon absorbing systems that we've overwhelmed with our human activity. Walmart's an example of a movement in my view of this book. Can you give us maybe a, a favorite story or an organization or maybe an entrepreneur that inspired you while you were doing research on the book? Well, one of the first stories I tell is of uh, one of my partners who very sadly passed away just last month, Mm -hmm. unexpectedly, father of kids in the Bay Area, Ryan Popple. We tell the story of how he went to Iraq to fight for the country. He saw our incredible dependence on oil. He, his friend was killed in action. He buried him. He, He tells the story in the book of erecting a helmet and a rifle over his, in his memory and saying, This is madness, the dependency that we have on fossil fuels from the Middle East. He came back and he became the first controller at Tesla, helping that company as it struggled with deposits to try to make a reliable vehicle in the midst of the recession. He then came to Kleiner and said, I want to devote my efforts to helping entrepreneurs innovate. He saw buses, electric buses, as a a powerful way to make considered purchase decisions at scale. And he became the CEO of Proterra, the U.S.-based electric bus battery manufacturer. That's one of 35 stories. <laughs> they're honest. They're heartrending. They tell you of the struggles. This is not easy work, but the entrepreneurial community, I think, sees the vision, sees the mission, and across many, many facets of this problem is hard at work. And it's, besides impassioned youth, one of the things that gives me great hope. Yeah. I know you also spoke with uh, Ethan Brown, Beyond Meat, who happened to be a a guest on How Success Happens and talked to me about some of the incredible things that he is doing with that business. uh, Ethan came to see us as a tall, uh, lanky, passionate entrepreneur, and we put up the first funding for his uh, Beyond Meat. He said, I want to see a McPlant. I want McDonald's. It's crazy that we should have to kill animals to get protein and no compromise in in the taste, the quality, the texture. And so Beyond Meat, I think, really ignited a, a, a revolution across the globe. The book points out there's a billion cattle on the planet. It's the second largest species on earth. And if we just can substitute every day one less serving of beef. Looks like we can take five gigatons of the 59 gigatons out of the equation. So beef and dairy, fixing our food system 
is uh, a high priority, involves billions of people making different decisions about how they eat, but we can do this. You've been involved, as, as I've mentioned, in, in so many incredible businesses and stories and, and have changed the world in many ways. This, to me, I could hear your passion, and, and this, to me, seems like it really might be your biggest undertaking. Does it feel like that to you as well? This is the most ambitious thing that I've ever seen teams, entrepreneurs, governments uh, take on. The only, the only thing that's comparable to it, I think, is the mobilization that took place at the time of World War II. And I think that was an existential crisis for democracy. If Churchill hadn't stood up for the lonely isles of the Great, Great Britain and England, if the Japanese had not attacked Pearl Harbor, if the U.S. had not gotten into that war with our manufacturing muscle, and make no mistake about it, it was the combined manufacturing muscle of the Western world, the allies, that defeated the Axis. We stopped making cars and appliances in the U.S. Mm. We took those factories and we turned them all over to making battleships. 260,000 aircraft, 28,000 battleships. And that mobilization is similar in scope to what the world must do over the next couple of decades to create the new clean energy economy. Well, we're all extremely grateful. Anyone today who's living in the free world and grateful and fortunate for how it turned out and how everyone was able to get behind that during World War II, or unfortunately we'd be living in a, a, a much different world. Before I let you go, I want to ask you your true opinion of your view, and if you think that we will make it to net zero in time. We're up against some uh, really tough challenges. There are entrenched business interests, fossil fuel industries that are defending their way of creating value for shareholders. Uh, there's misinformation going on in these campaigns, and our political and policy leaders have a very hard time getting ahead of their populations. As a people, we're not good at anticipating problems, and that's required. So those are formidable problems to overcome. On the other side of the ledger, we have innovation and investment. We have the business sector that, in my view, is leading the way. We have the investing sector. There's $150 trillion of capital that's now committed to their portfolios being aligned with net zero. We have human ingenuity which I certainly believe in. I worship at the altar of innovation. But more than anything else, I think what we've got going for us is the passion of youth. For Greta Thunberg, for Mary Dorr, this is not some optional issue. This is their future. It's their planet. So I'm counting on them together with all the other forces to see our way. This plan can be achieved. I would not say I'm optimistic, but I would say I'm hopeful. And I think hope is an incredibly powerful, inspirational and motivational force. There's some leaders in this movement who need to be both optimistic and hopeful. And that's because they have a lot of followers. Those must be motivated and inspired. I don't have that kind of influence. I'm the pragmatic engineer from St. Louis, Missouri, where the plan and the numbers need to add up. And yes, I'm, I'm hopeful we'll get this done. Well, I think you have a lot of people who are listening, a lot of people around this world that are really appreciative that 
this is a cause you have put yourself behind brain power. I'm very happy that your daughter stood up at that table and told it like it was because she's a hundred percent right in leaving the world a better place than when we found it. And I really hope that you're able to achieve a lot of these goals or achieve the goal and uh, make the world a better place because this is bigger than Amazon, bigger than Google, bigger than all these businesses. So important. And John, I want to thank you for coming on and sharing this and sharing your story. And I think you've inspired a lot of folks today. Well, uh, thanks for that opportunity. And let's just be sure to invite your impressive and powerful and entrepreneurial success-oriented audience to speedandscale.com because they can sign up for the campaign there. They can track the progress of every one of these 55. We're going to be updating them. We don't have them all right. In fact, I'm, I'm going to tell you, this is not the perfect plan, but it is a plan and it's pragmatic. It's science-based. It's, they're stretch goals, but they're achievable. So let's go do this with speed yeah. and scale. Well, thanks for the plan. That's what we needed. Now everyone needs to take some action. So John, thanks again. And uh, we'll be talking soon, hopefully when things keep getting better and we hit our goal. Thanks again. Thank you. And that's our episode. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to How Success Happens wherever you get your podcasts. We come out with a new episode every Wednesday morning and you don't want to miss it. And if you like to share, please feel free to pass along the show to an entrepreneur friend who could use a boost and I could always use the subscribers. And do you have ideas for guests? I always love to hear about great entrepreneurs. If you know anyone, shoot me an email at hsh at entrepreneur.com or on Twitter at Robert Tuckman. that's R-O-B-E-R-T-T-U-C-H-M-A-N or even send me a message on LinkedIn. How Success Happens is a production of Entrepreneur Media. Be sure to visit entrepreneur.com for insight on building your business, or even better yet, subscribe to our magazine. No joke, I found my first job after reading about a company in Entrepreneur Magazine back in the 1990s. It's always been my absolute favorite magazine for entrepreneurs. Thanks for listening and spending some time with me today. Until next time, my name is Robert Tuckman, just a fellow entrepreneur and your host. See you soon.